Yanit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshet Podcasts, two Jews on the news. Except this week it is three Jews on the news. Count them. Even better than two Jews. Even better. We are joined all the way from the United States by Jeffrey Goldberg. Jeff Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Welcome to Unholy Jeff. Welcome to, uh, is my name Unholy Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) We are the Unholy Jewish Trinity is what he meant to say. I think Le- Levy, Goldberg, and Friedland. If we can't, if we don't make it in the podcast podcast business, we have got a future in tailoring, <laughs> accountancy. Think of the possibility. Yeah, gastroenterology. <laughs> yeah, um, we're very. Yeah, it's very diverse. It's a very diverse group of Jews. <laughs> if if this uh, if we were still living in a normal world, Jeff, we would actually be just sitting all of us in the same place somewhere in a cool place in Washington. Or Tel Aviv, or London. Yeah. Um, gossiping in the, about the world, complaining about politics, um, having uh, a competition about whose political system is more problematic. Right, and who's a better Jew? And who's a better Jew? Well, don't don't forget the important. Is there question. a question? One of yes, us lives in Tel Aviv. Yeah, Are we asking the question who the better Jew is? You've played that card far too early on. <laughs> no, I've got nothing left. That's but, it. I don't have I anything. Think, I'm in Tel Aviv. I got vaccinations. That's what I have. What do you Even guys without have? the restaurant setting, I think we can still gossip about politics, although I do feel slightly the third wheel here because the big dynamic has been between your two cities this week with the whole psychodrama of who's going to call when and BB sitting there by the phone feeling neglected and abandoned. And finally, the call came through. Yeah, I, I have to, before everything, I want to. I want you guys to listen to how our version of uh, SNL, Eretz Nederet, uh, our satire program, uh, made fun of this yesterday. Basically, Bibi trying to call Biden, Biden not answering the phone until Bibi picks up uh, the host's phone, his name is Kitsis, and trying to call Biden. Let's listen in. Even someone who doesn't know Hebrew can understand this. Kitsis! How's it going, my good old friend? Joe, Joe, sit at me, Bibi. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, there's no Joe here that's interested in speaking to you. Joe, uh, No, no. I had to make some urgent calls to Russia, oh. Mexico, yes. Micronesia, Netherlands, <laughs> Narnia, and Netherlands. Oh, um, I got to ask you, Jeff. Yeah. Um, the message obviously has been sent, and the message is either we're too busy dealing with other countries or... We're not, you know, it's not urgent for us to deal with you. No, it's you. It's and not. Which one? Yeah, it's it's not about you, Israel. It's about you, Bibi. I mean, that's <laughs> that's you know, I think abundantly clear to anybody who's paid attention to the last. I was going to say five years of of the Trump Bibi relationship, but actually, um, the scars the scars are old. I mean, you're talking about Barack Obama's vice president. Uh, here, you know, so even if the even if the relationship with uh, with Trump and Bibi hadn't been so uh, amorous, um, you know, you'd still be you'd still have long memories. And remember, the Biden team is to, in in to to a large degree the Obama team, and they lived through years of the Bibi Ron Dermer um, screw with them kind of dynamic, and so. You know, I'm surprised that I'm surprised that Biden called at all. Yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with you about that because 
he, he Bibi gets to brag that he's the first leader in the Middle East to get a call. Yes, 12th overall, but he places first in the Middle East. And I think I'm interested with what you say about the Obama people, because in here in London, when they were getting worried that Boris Johnson wouldn't get forgiven for having said, you know, dissed Obama and talking about his part Kenyan ancestry and that's why he's hostile to Britain and all that. They were all saying, oh, no, no, you know, the Obama Biden people are above that. They don't harbour grudges. It will, they'll move on. It's a new day. But I, I, I'm kind of with you. I think probably people people's memories are long. And what you've just said there suggests, yeah, they still harboured a bit of a grudge and were operating on that basis by making BB wait. Yeah, well, and it's also another thing. I mean, yes, the you don't do not underestimate the loathing. I mean, put it this way: if that was if there were Prime Minister Lapid, it would have been forty eight hours. Biden loves Israel. Biden loves the fact that he has an, a long standing relationship with Israel. Um, they just really don't like Bibi. Um, the the second more substantive point, uh, or, or sort of policy oriented point, is that they don't. Well, I'm going to put it this way. They might think that the Israel-Palestinian dispute is important, but they don't want to pay any attention to it or or invest any effort in it. So it's also not, it's, Bibi is also the prime minister of a country um, that um, is not at the forefront of any kind of Biden policy agenda. Like they are not going to repeat the mistakes of the tail end of the Obama administration and spend a lot of time and have a secretary of state trying desperately to make a deal when the parties don't want to make a deal. Uh, so there's no, there's literally no reason for him to call BB, except by calling BB, he gets people to stop talking about whether or not he's <laughs> going to call BB. But there still is the issue of Iran. I mean, obviously, they're geared up to return to the JCPOA or, JCPOA or some format of the JCPOA. That has to involve Israel. That has to involve talking with Israeli officials even if you don't want to speak to Netanyahu himself. Well, yes and no. I or mean, maybe the, Obama, not. <laughs> the Obama administration didn't talk to Israel that much, maybe maybe not enough um, during that process. But um, I, I don't I don't doubt that there'll be that there'll be more consultation. And I think, you know, this is what the Obama administration did when it was fed up with Bibi. Um, it underscored that our relationship with the Ministry of Defense in Tel Aviv is fantastic. Our relationship with X is fantastic, you know, and just sort of work do the workaround around the prime minister. Um, no, but you're right. I mean, if Iran comes on comes on the radar, then it's important. And the other only other point I would make is that these are very experienced foreign policy hands, starting with the president himself, President Biden, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, and so on. Um, they know that you know you can you can ignore the Middle East, but the Middle East won't ignore you. And so that at some point in the next four years, um, there will be a Hezbollah crisis, an Iran crisis, a something crisis. That will um, that will cause Biden to have to jump in. What they're hoping for, obviously, by that time, is that as a different prime minister in Israel. I don't want to sound too Israeli about this, but uh, I mean, when you say they don't like Netanyahu, to put it mildly, it's not that they don't like Israel. I mean, we should probably stress that point. That yeah, that, I mean, you know, but, no, but they don't they don't like the right side. I mean, I shouldn't just personalize it right. too much. They don't like settlements. They don't like. Um, I mean, they're not different than the majority of American Jews, to put it bluntly. Yeah. In, in, in that sense, they, you know, they don't like Likud-oriented policies. Um, but, I mean, Joe Biden is a person who, I'm sure Israelis know this, you know, spends uh, 
can't help but tell the story of the time he met Golda and the story of this and the story of that. And, you know, you know, we've we've seen him wearing, you know, um, you know, Kipot, Israeli Kipot. I mean, I mean, he's 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 from the generation of Democratic politicians that has a an emotional relationship with the with the state of Israel, with the idea of Israel. They're, they're just they're just disturbed by the, the direction of politics. In one sense, it is not at all an abnormal situation. They're a liberal administration. The Netanyahu administration is a conservative administration. The, the Boris Johnson example is an interesting one. You know, so they're just not going to get along that well because they don't agree in, in worldview anyway. This is the sex in the city rule, which is just, he's just not that into you. Um, I, I, we're focusing on Israel, obviously, but, but I, I do want to sort of zoom out on this. And, you know, it has been 30 days, um, almost to the day, uh, uh, in, into the Biden presidency. Um, and I wonder when you look at these four years, you, you wrote a, a piece uh, called uh, more than a year ago, a nation coming apart. And you wrote, Jeff, uh, maybe it is that we as a people no longer seem to know who we are or what our common purpose is. And I, I wonder if something, it's hard to compare a month to four years, obviously, but has something been ameliorated in this month? Do you feel diff? Does DC feel different to you? No, I mean, it, it feel, well, yes, it feels marginally different. I think the entire political world feels differently because Donald Trump isn't on Twitter. I mean, seriously, really? that's, that's a huge, no, it's a huge psychological, um, uh, huge downward psychological pressure released, we're released from that because you don't have to think about them all the time. Um, uh, no, I mean, I think we're in a, in, a, in a spring right now. I think we're in a temporary period, um, you know, the, the, a temporary period of some calm, but the, the, there is no permanent Democratic majority. And I think the thing we've learned over the last month, um, going back to January 6th, um, is that is that the Republican Party put aside Mitt Romney and Ben Sass and a few other senators. The Republican Party has made its decision. Like they're 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 pro January 6th insurrection. I mean, there are people who are leaving the Republican Party because of it. I don't think they represent more than 35 or 40 percent of the American public, but 35 to 40 percent of the American public. You know what? Uh, I mean, in, 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 a, in a parliamentary system, obviously, a 40 percent of the public is your prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, the, you know, th- this movement is going to come roaring back. Um, I don't have any doubt about it. Um, I, 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 I mean, let's put it this way. I have a little doubt. I mean, maybe things break apart um, and the Republican Party reconstitutes itself and it splits into two. But right now there aren't two Republican parties. There's just one Republican Party and um, and some senators who are outliers from their party. So, like, we're just we're just in a pause in the uh, in the grand experiment of whether America can actually transition itself to being a multicultural democracy. You see, that big thought has uh, is, is been on my mind a bit, partly because of something, uh, well, in fact, we've actually got a bit of you saying this to your neat, um, which we should... Me too. We, which we should you which we should hear, because I think you were on... Well, Yoni, you say when you spoke to Jeff, I think it was straight after January the it, Right, it was the day after the, um, the, the riots, and you spoke on uh, Channel 12, and you said this, and this, uh, this was very interesting. Let's listen to it. We are in... A new kind of reality for America. I mean, you and I have joked about this over the years that um, 
you, you know, Americans look at Israeli politics and have traditionally said, wow, it's crazy over there. But I think um, both on political stability or, or and on vaccination, by the way, I think you're now in a position to lecture us about our stability and competence. You see, I think you, were, you, part, you were partly being funny there, but you weren't, but not wholly. And the reason well, why I was I trying to be up, partly funny. You, you were being, you know, partly, and you were, and but the and you were being nice to you know to Yoni because you were talking to Israel. You better be but nice I, to Yoni. But the the other but doesn't the know my violent side yet. The thing Don't I'm remembering, him, Jeff. Jeff, is you know not that I in any way took this personally, but you made a bit of a splash a few years back when you wrote a cover story for the Atlantic saying, "Is it time for the Jews to leave Europe? Uh, you know, is it is is that has that time come?" And, you know, I think you and I had a conversation as you were writing that piece. And at the time, there was a kind of implied uh, assumption that was pretty unarguable, which was, that you know, there were populists and nationalists and xenophobes who were on the rise in Europe. And America was a kind of bedrock stability. And Jews tend to live more comfortably in places that are politically stable. And I'm not in any way going to say, you know, is it time for the Jews of America to leave? But I do wonder if the premise of that thesis, which is America is rock solid and steady and that's good for Jews, is that premise just a bit more shaky now than it was when you wrote that landmark piece? Yeah, sure. Um, thank you for not accusing me of being smugly superior in that writing, um, <laughs> by the way. Um, not, not one bit. No. I mean, look, I, I, I continue to think that about Europe, about continental Europe in particular. Um, although, you know, subsequent to that kind of those conversations we were having, you did see this rise of Corbynism. So, uh, you know, it, it wasn't all, uh, all picnic in, in London for a long time. Um, um, you know, after the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, you know, I think a lot of us, uh, I mean, we're, sad and angry for all the usual reasons that one would be sad and angry, but it did, um, it did shake the foundations, um, uh, of, uh, it did shake the foundation to, to some, uh, large degree of, com of complacency, I guess. Um, I mean, it is, it is interesting. I'll go back to this thing that Yonit and I were talking about on channel, whatever it is. I never get the channels. No, I never get, no. I, never, I can never remember. Let me make it out. Give it a brief. It was channel two. Netanyahu thought it was too uh, too strong a channel. He broke it up into two channels, 13 and 12. Now it's channel 12. See, I made that very simple for you. By the way, when you say that, <laughs> I begin to doubt my analysis that Israel is a stable, normal country. <laughs> well, I don't know why you said it in the first place. Uh, maybe you were tired. I didn't want to argue. Yeah, when, yeah, no, when the prime minister can just say, you are not channel two anymore. It's like kind of, kind of bonkers sounding. Um, yes. But uh, the thing that we were talking about on that, on, on when, we, when we talked right after January 6th, um, you know, it... it, it there's something to that. I, I mean, I think uh, I think America, vis-a-vis American Jews, uh, I think you can look and say, okay, we thought these things were in our past and they seem to be in our present. Um, and you know, the vaccination plan. I come back to that. The, the what what Israel's doing is very impressive, and what we're doing here is only intermittently impressive. Um, and um, I guess to answer Mr. Friedland's question, um, <laughs> it's. I don't, I don't know if the picture in Europe has shifted. I mean, one of the things that happened in Europe subsequent to that, that 
piece is that, you know, first they came for the Jews and then it was everybody. So that's, that's, that's sort of typical in, in the historical narrative, right? Um, um, but I, I would say I'm not, I don't know if the picture in Europe has changed much from that analysis, but definitely in America, there's a cloud over, uh, over the status of the Jewish community in this country that didn't, uh, that wasn't quite so observable uh, five or six years ago. Um, Israel remains the same. I mean, actually, and what, what's interesting, if you sort of put this on a longer continuum, the, the difference between European Jewish communities, American Jewish communities, and Israeli Jewish community is that the Israeli Jewish community just gets bigger and the other ones don't. So like while these weird instabilities are happening in diaspora countries, Israel just kind of just keeps clicking along. I mean, dysfunctionally in your usual delightful ways, um, but um, it just keeps clicking along and being a bigger economy and having a bigger population. And, and you know, it's, it, it kind of, there, there begins to be a feeling, you begin to feel this uh, idea that Israeli dominance in the global Jewish community becomes more and more obvious. See, I was going to say that I think the dynamic in the diaspora that has, that has changed in the way you said is that Israel, yes, numerically has got bigger, but the dynamic before was that there was this assumption that, yeah, well, uh, you know, America, if you were going to be anywhere else in the diaspora, America's the obvious place. There was that assumption that it was, uh, you know, still the golden of Medina and a kind of warm, accepting place. And therefore, the other issues were about other places in diaspora rather than diaspora itself. In terms of Europe, though, now, I think, you know, the, the Victor Orbans of this world are still there. Le Pen could well give Macron a real close run in the next French election. Uh, the British example cuts both ways, because you're right, the, the Corbyn experience was a simultaneously a traumatic experience for British Jews, and yet also oddly empowering in the sense that British Jews finally found their voice. They were no longer... Uh, saddled with the kind of quietism of old and they found their voice they organized and Corbyn was soundly defeated in the 2019 election and the anti-semitism was one of the issues and therefore British Jews can comfort themselves that their fellow citizens did in the end repudiate that and Labour has, has gone in a different direction. America does seem different because 75 million people voted for Donald Trump, he didn't get a thorough hiding the way Corbyn did and the Amer for the picking up the thing you said, the American Republican Party have voted to stick with Trumpism in a way that the British Labour Party has more or less, besides a fringe, decided to turn a corner away from Corbynism. So, you know, I'm not saying anyone has peace of mind here particularly. I think there's still worry that just the change in the dynamic is there's no longer that feeling, that, oh, look, there's one big diaspora community where everything's fine. I don't think people think that anymore about anywhere in the diaspora. And I think that's a function of Trump and the last five years. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's the function of, um, uh, it's the, it's the function of the global rise of populism. And I think if you look at the French Jewish community, which is obviously the biggest in, in Europe, um, you, you know, uh, and I did some reporting on this and I found it fascinating that, you know, as, as long as the, you know, national front type, uh, of person was obsessing about Islam, they weren't obsessing about Judaism. Right. But it's 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 like some there's some joke about like you don't have to be like you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be the faster than the other guy who's running from the bear, you know, um, and, um, you know, and, and it's and it's like 
I, I wouldn't look at any Jewish community in, in Europe and say, okay, you're, you're fine. It's not like the, the European Jewish communities uh, are sometimes less hated by the populist right only because they're not Muslim, right? And, and so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you generally. It's, it's because of populism, because of globalization, because of social media, because of a lot of different things, economic and technological dislocation. Um, uh, when there's disruption, cultural civilizational disruption, when there's high levels of anxiety, when there's high levels of populism, Jews don't do well. Jews when there's do well. a pandemic Jews, and a global Yeah, you know, Jews do well crisis. in centrism. You know, Jews do well in kind of liberal, centrist, democratic environments. Well, and steadiness, just when there's political stability, I think. I think your point about Jews and Muslims is abs uh, absolutely right, and that's why I like it when Jews and Muslims do make common cause. And there are moments where that happens in Britain and in Europe. Um, you know, the, Israel complicates that picture, but I think a lot of communities outside do get that, that, you know, if they're going for one, they'll pretty, be, pretty soon be going for right, the other. Right, 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 right. The people who hate Muslims generally don't like Jews. Right. They just, they Even just, if they say they it. might hate Muslims a little more than they hate Jews at the moment, but right. these are febrile <laughs> issues. You know, you mentioned, Jonathan, you mentioned Israel, and I remember this conversation that you had um, in 2014. Uh, you were sitting with uh, Mehdi Hassan, and you said, you know, the British Jewish community is exceptionally aligned and bound up with Israel, but they're not accountable or responsible for anything that the Israeli government is doing. And you gave the example of someone who I think wrote Free Gaza on a synagogue, on a synagogue wall. And I remember listening to that and, and, and kind of thinking to myself, you know, Israelis, it's not that we don't, we don't keep that in the center of our thinking. It's not that we don't care. We care very much about anti-Semitism. We care about it when it happens in the U.S. We care about it when it happens in Europe. And, but we... It's, we, we don't always see the connection between what Israel does and what the effect, the ripple effect is. Um, I guess my question to both of you would be, you know, what don't we get? That's very, a very un-Israeli question, but still. I, I think um, on that, the, the one thing I would say is the thing you've already fessed up to, Yoni, which is I don't think, you know, Israelis and particularly, so you're, not, you're, you're not responsible for this, but Israeli policymakers don't think for a second, and of course I don't expect them to think for more than 10 seconds, but they don't think for a second of what the impact will be outside Israel. The people who will have to carry the can or somehow explain this or be held accountable for it, it never enters their mind. So sometimes, you know, there'll just be a form of words used by an Israeli politician or uh, minister, and you just, you know, you'll you'll put your head in your hands thinking that is going to be so misunderstood outside, or even understood, it's so inept, it may play brilliantly on, uh, uh, you know, on Israeli TV, but that is just going to be a nightmare for Jews around the world. Why on earth would you say that? And then, of course, you realise they're not thinking for a second about that wider Jewish public. And so therefore, you know, saying and that uh, saying something that, yeah, Trump might love it, but everybody else around the world will, you know, recoil from some kind of, you know, ultra-nationalist or ethno-nationalist sentiment. That kind of thing would be an example. But, you know, I, I, I've sort of almost got past the point of even thinking, of, of expecting any different. That's very Jewish of you, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sort of podcast version I'm not, of a I'm not even, I'm just going to sit here. I'm not even going to expect anything different. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing coincidence. Maybe I'm throwing this conversation in a different direction and, and, and forgive me and we can pull it back. Uh, but I'm listening to you both and it's a coincidence. I was, I was reading, I'm, I'm reading, uh, um, Jonathan's 
one of the 11 books that Jonathan has <laughs> written called Jacob's Gift. It's about his family history and questions about Judaism. I hope I'm accurately describing it, Jonathan, and you talk about... Um, you, there's a moment when he talks about how Jews can sort of freeze their existence or their, you know, I guess, set of values and put them in a knapsack and take them, take it with them. And you, Jeffrey, in that, Jeff, in that piece uh, that, that uh, Jonathan was talking about, you ask one of your interviewees, do you have a bag? And it's so sort of inherent in the Jewish experience, right? That image of I'm taking everything I have with me, whether it's physical or it's spiritual, I have everything in a bag and I can take it with me. Um, and, and the only thing I could think of while sort of coincidentally reading those two sentences this week was Israelis don't have that. I mean, it's not that they don't feel like it's a safe place. They, they have their, you know, obviously they feel like they're un, under existential threat, but they don't have the feeling of putting everything in a bag. I mean, Israelis, you mean anything, they don't, they don't think of how to buy feeling? more real estate, right? You mean they don't have the they don't have the comfort of doing that, or they don't even have the psychology of wanting to do that. That's comfort. Yeah, that's comfort. What that's... from a, from a diasporic perspective? <laughs> I mean, com- comfort in the sense of um, if you think that you might have to run from someplace, believing that there is some exactly place, believing it's that they, believing that, that you're, you're ready, or believing. I mean, I'm not saying this for myself or anybody in, in America. Really, I don't want to over dramatize how people feel, right. but I mean, yeah, it's kind of a practical comfort if you actually thought you could go somewhere. But what I'm asking you is like Israelis don't huh. Israelis don't even think that way because why would you run from your country? Right. I mean, we don't have that ingrained in us. In a, I, I guess when you take it three steps further. Far, further down the line, you say, okay, that's comforting. I can actually run away. But we we don't think that in, in that sense, I think. That is a different kind of um, no, way No, I think of that's thinking. why Israel represents such a radical break from the Jewish experience because, you know, every other, dias- every other Jewish community in history until this one has always thought that in some version. I mean, the, re- the point I was making before about the America thing the last five years is I suspect if I was American, if I was sitting in Jeff's shoes for the very first time in my adult lifetime or lifetime, I'd have had an inkling of that feeling about the bag in the last five years. If, you, if I were where you are, I would have done. Yeah. And, and in, in Britain, intermittently, I've had that, just an awareness of it vaguely. And I just think it's such a radical departure in, in two millennia of Jewish experience that you and your kids, Yoni, would never need to have that inkling even. Right. That, that makes yeah. sense. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, whether the, the end of Trump signals that the Proud Boys will now not be so proud or they'll be proud in their basement. Oh, no. Or no. rather, the social media has sort of taken that genie out of the bottle anyway and it's, it's going to take a while to fix if, if it is fixed at all. You'd have to be a pretty naive Jew. And like we, you know, we do specialize in naive Jews, obviously. But, um, <laughs> but you'd have to be a pretty naive Jew to think that, oh, that was weird, but it's all over. I mean, the, the conditions that led to Trump's rise remain. And the issue is, you know, what happens when a more clever populist or somebody more industrious or not quite as stupid or whatever, you know, however you want to frame uh, who the next populist is. If the conditions pertain, then the conditions pertain. Um, uh, 
By the way, I didn't know that your podcast was going to be so serious. I would have like I would have done homework. <laughs> oh, there's a mo- there's a moment where we talk about ferrets. I um, thought, that Jonathan has a thing. I thought where, we were uh, just going to make make. We can. We can it's true. We've gone. Quite, we've gone kind of dark. Um, it was me can, with the bat. Wait, wait. Are you me. saying I'm sorry. this is a Jewish I should not be reading any of dark? what you guys have wrote <laughs> written ever. That oh my, is my problem. Yeah. My mistake. My no. bad. I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, I'll just leave you two alone to talk about um, I think we can, the English language. We can language. lighten it a little bit by asking Jeff to play our little game with us, which we, we always do each week when we hand out awards for chutzpah, or, or display of the week, and mensch of the week. Don't worry, we're going to give you time while we talk about... I, I, I'm going to get this <laughs> he's interesting... Get, he's got, got his scary eyes. Well, scary. I would give... I, would give <laughs> I, I think it could be either a chutzpah or mensch to you, your neat. Because of yes. your amazing interview with, with Prime Minister Netanyahu this week, which we haven't found time to talk about, where you managed to get him to say that he had been talking to one of the witnesses in his own trial, which he was not meant to have admitted. True. And here's my interesting question before we start handing out awards, which is, he is such a practised communicator, Bibi Netanyahu, almost none more in the world. Is it conceivable that he literally got sort of tangled and trapped into saying something? which is amazing kudos to you, if so. Or is there some amazingly Machiavellian game where somehow it was good for him to blurt that out? I tend towards the former, but you tell me. I will answer the question. I'm just trying to figure out if you're if this is you giving me the Mensch Award or him the Chutzpah Award. What is going on? You know, I don't I, mind. I'm, I'm I don't prepared mind to do a double here because either way, you know, it's just such <laughs> I think, a signature I think moment. he expected, look, it was his first interview in the pre-election blitz, right, that he... He hates the mainstream media. He always signals it out, singles it out. But then a month before the election, he has to do his whole um, going through the the different networks. Remember, Jeff? We're li- no, you're going to be working at Channel, Channel 50, 59 soon. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be at the sports 347 channel. or something on the <laughs> that dial. Might, that might well happen. Um, <laughs> so it's funny because it's true, like Homer Simpson likes to say. Um, so... Uh, I think what I was trying to do and what I have a good friend who used to work for another prime minister who once told me that the important thing to do is to try and throw the interview off, interviewee a little off balance. I- I'm sorry, wait, That's- there have been other prime ministers? When you were a young boy, when you were a young boy, Jeff, there were some other prime ministers. Can I just tell you two for one thing? Sorry, Ancient history. I wrote a profile. Sorry, I have to tell you this because I just, just, just saw this. I wrote a profile of Jabril Rajub in 1997 says how mm-hmm. old I am, possible future head of the Palestinian Authority now, then the security director of the West Bank. Um, and and I didn't realize, it was in the New York Times Magazine, I didn't realize as I was reading it because I was looking at what I had said about Jabril Rajoub. And I, I interviewed Prime Minister Netanyahu. There's like quotes from <laughs> Prime Minister Netanyahu. It was like 1997. Yeah. It's like, you guys, I don't know. Well, we no, did but- have a few in between. Yeah, I know, but it felt like, it it feels like, all right already, you know, all right, I got it. Now, you can make history programs, I've done one, you can make a history (laughs) program for the BBC about 25th anniversary of events in Israel, and he was still... And by the way, the quotes quotes sound exactly like what he would say today, by the way. He's he's the fixed Uh, point in our universe. I didn't mean to interrupt the flow of your very serious (laughs) seriousness here. No, but uh, you're... You, Gone to, um, you were talking about wrong-footing interviewees. Wrong-footing interviewees. Why was I thinking of that? I, I don't think he planned to say that thing about talking to Arnon Milch and the Hollywood uh, mogul. Um, so listen, um, you can get either chutzpah or mensch, I think, for that scoop of the week. Um, I think you would do, you know, whatever, whichever award you like. The chutzpah award I was tempted to give, I'm torn between two Washington candidates because I think Mitch McConnell is a real candidate for chutzpah for simultaneously... 
trying to have his cake and eat it. And this is Boris Johnson's political ideology in a nutshell, to the point where it's known as cakeism, where you simultaneously say, I want to acquit Donald Trump and appeal to all the people in my Republican Party who think I should be off the former president's back, and I want to condemn him and get kudos and applause from Wall Street backers of the Republican Party and establishment media, etc. And that's what Mitch McConnell tried to do, to simultaneously be both on both sides of the Donald Trump issue. And I think he gets a chutzpah prize for that, unless he's beaten to it by Donald Trump himself, who in his little response to Mitch McConnell said, all these wins, all these Senate gains were because of me, and the Senate losses in Georgia... That's, they were because of Mitch McConnell. That idea of thinking, whenever we do well, that's me. Whenever we do badly, it's someone else. That also deserves a chutzpah award. Do you have any other nominees, Jeff, for chutzpah award? Wait, I don't remember. Did 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 Yonit get the award for Mensch? Or? Well, she's I a nominee. Both. She's a I strong nominee, yeah. I'm taking the Mensch. I don't, I don't understand the rule. I mean, I don't understand the rules of this game when you could just nominate. <laughs> Normally, you've got to have a hero and a villain. That's, yeah, no, you can no, keep no, it as no. broad I mean, that you can nominate yourselves seems kind of... <laughs> I don't know, like insider <laughs> trading. Uh, I'm still stuck on the cake. No, 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 no. I, I would, I would, I would say, and I've just been following this a little bit in the in the news out of Israel today uh, that Bibi would qualify for um, for for finally getting his phone call with Joe Biden, who is obviously overwhelmingly popular with the mass of American Jews, and obviously the you know the new president, and and um, and uh, and sort of getting that gain and then and then going on and 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 waxing uh you know sort of beautifully about Rush Limbaugh and what a great friend and uh he is and and sort of it, it's a little bit of uh it's a little bit of a thumb in the eye to the Biden people who had just given him what he wanted to to then go out and laud excessively a person who is the I mean, besides the fact that unpopular with, you know, let's say 70 to 80 percent of American Jewry to um, to go out and and kind of and, 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 and talk about this wonderful man who is like the was the sworn enemy of Joe Biden and the Democratic foreign policy establishment, among other things. It just seemed like it seemed like very it seemed like classic old school Netanyahu kind of move. And I remember very well, as do you two, I imagine, um, the time Biden was in Israel as vice president and, uh, oh, look, a, a, a settlement, a settlement announcement while it's just, it's just like, there's a, there's a, either an impulse or a predisposition or just the way things work, um, to kind of just stick your thumb in the eye unnecessarily. So I don't know if that counts as a chutzpah or, or whatever, but I, I was just, oh. no, I was just noting that, 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 and by the way, you could be you could be a mensch and like write a nice note to Rush Limbaugh's family and say he was always a friend to me or something like that. But just going out of your way and uh, I don't know, sticking it. Yeah, down. no, I think it counts. I think it's got the chutzpah quality as well of of my cakeism because he's trying to have it both ways by you know co- cozying up to Biden and praising his adversary. So I think that definitely wins. Um, oh, good. Mitch I'm glad. Award, this is my I, first time playing, so I didn't want to... No, no, you, you've made a good debut. <laughs> He's, you, you've got you. potential. You're better than this than we are. We don't want to admit. You've got good potential. Now, I've got a serious mensch, so I, if you've got something less serious, we should have that first, because I, I don't awesome. want to bring things down with my mensch candidate. So uh, I will um, I will give... I'm, I'm giving Mada the mensch award, the Magenta Vida Dome, which is the... Um, 
the, the Israeli Medical Emergency Service, who this week decided to vaccinate as many people as possible and sent their, uh, went to the beach to vaccinate young Israelis who didn't want to, which I think is very cool. So I'm giving them the mention award. They deserve it. And my one is, and sometimes this has become our informal sort of obituary spot, which shouldn't become a habit, but this week saw the passing of Otto Dov Kulka, who is uh, and was an extraordinary man because he was a very distinguished historian of the Holocaust, admired for work in a really exceptional area, which is he analysed polling data of the German nation during the years of the Holocaust and found that far from being blissfully unaware and indifferent, they knew a lot about what was going on and approved it. And he did that by analysing polling data. He was a serious scholar of the Holocaust and only revealed to colleagues and students very, very late that he was himself a survivor of the Holocaust and had been, as a 10-year-old in the Czech family camp, a very bizarre still part of the Auschwitz story, a camp where uh, Czech families were kept intact just in case uh, the Red Cross should come by and inspect uh, a kind of Potemkin concentration camp within Auschwitz. Uh, Dov, uh, Otto Dov Kulka kept that secret for most of his life and then wrote the most extraordinary memoir, Landscape of the Metropolis of Death. Um, it's a brilliant memoir and he was an extraordinary man. So he would be uh, my candidate for Mensch of the week and uh, I think we've done all the awards we can possibly do um, and we, we every everyone should have prizes um, I think we've and, and, and Jeff you've made a, a fantastic start as our rookie for this thank week. you um, I think in terms of the mensch chutz, um, chutzpah distribution you know you can definitely come back do you two also give out the Israel prize is that uh, is that <laughs> No, but we do the Oscars. Do you need any help with that? That's an interesting one. Well, I knew there was. I knew there was Jewish involvement somehow. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks um, for having me. It's nice. Nice to be there. Thank have you me. so much for for talking to us. Um, you know, I I um, I was going to say you're one of the smartest people I know, but don't, forget don't that. You're don't. great fun. And if anyone, after listening to this, does not believe you're great fun, I would say. Go listen to uh, Jeff's commencement speech, John Hopkins. I would recommend. That. Oh, yellow is your color, my friend. Uh, that was quite a uh, that's quite a robe that they got me in there. That, time. <laughs> that was quite a robe. Yeah, I made um, mostly jokes. It was mostly jokes. A little bit like dire warnings about democracy, but mostly jokes. I remember that. <laughs> that could be the slogan for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Democracy <laughs> is dying plus jokes. <laughs> that's right. Democracy dies in darkness <laughs> yeah. with a snicker. Yeah, um, that would be that would be good. Um, thank you, Jeff Goldberg, very much for coming on Unholy. Really and we appreciate it. And we were really honored. We spell it differently, but we were totally honored that you came up. Yeah, you are our very first guest. Wow. Our favorite guest. Um, if you uh, have enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a review. We love five-star reviews. Um, we also love you to recommend us to your friends, your family, your grandparents, your grandchildren, <laughs> anybody. You don't ring, you don't write, but do review. And who else do we need to thank, Yonit? I'm just shocked at how I got the British guy to do the hard sell. We have an American, we have an Israeli, and the British guy yeah. did the hard sell. And, and it's pain. You can hear um, the pain for me. <laughs> um, and uh, we were thanking uh, Leo Friedman and Rom Atik and Yair Bashan and Irad Eshel. And thank you for listening. And Jeff, thanks again for doing this. Thank and you. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. See you then. Thank you.